Hey gang, welcome to episode 156 of the No Persinium podcast, the voice of everything immersive, brought to you by Meow Wolf. I'm Noah Nelson, coming to you from NoPro headquarters in Los Angeles. Today on the show, uh, one of my favorite interviews from the entire 156 episode collection of podcasts that we have, Sean Stewart, um, who is a writer. Um, he's currently consulting for, uh, magic leap, which is the, uh, augmented reality company down in Florida. Um, but we're here today to talk about, uh, his life as a writer, um, as a storyteller, uh, as part of the team that created the alternate reality game. Uh, Sean was, was a writer and world builder, uh, for what became known as the beast. Um, it was, uh, the ARG that was part of the run up to Steven Spielberg's AI sort of turned everything on its ear that, that very first one. Um, and then he went on to work on a lot more. Um, I'm sure you, you ARG fans and practitioners, you know exactly who Sean is. Um, this, this is a fantastic, fantastic interview before I, I dive too deep into to the setup, uh, let's do let's do the bits that we always do at the top here, which is we've got some brand new Patreon backers to thank, um, and and indeed thank you everybody for keeping us going here. Um, we're we're making great strides forward, and um, we but we we really do still need everyone's support. If 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 the Patreon support dried up tomorrow. Uh, no, no amount of sponsorship could keep us alive forever. So just know that your support is needed. And thank you so much, Max Kochner, Jeff and Andy Crocker, and David Negrin, um, for all jumping in. I'm sure I butchered somebody's name because, hey, it's me. The sustaining backers of the show, as always, are Bradley Smith, Jan Budman, Lonnie Hansen, Arthur Tubman, Ari Hurston, Sam Kinkin, and Ross Sigworth. Now... This is often the part of the show where I'm like, hey, come on down, give us your money. But I, I've got the other request right now, which is um, we, we're, doing, we're doing good, right? But we can always do better. And what I'm concerned about right now, concerns the wrong word. What I'm interested in right now, oh, there we go, is we need to crack through the social media shell uh, we need to get word out about of our existence. Um, and I don't want it to just be whenever there's something like woo salacious going on on the website, because sometimes that happens and that's that's decent for traffic, but that's not what, what it's really about. There's, uh, there's a lovely article by our own Anthony Robinson about uh, Ghost Town Alive at Knott's and about his kids' relationship to it. Uh, it's a sweet, sweet short piece. Um, Give that a look over at the website, uh, and and if you like it, um, do the like and share thing. We need more people to share our articles, uh, particularly on Facebook, because the Facebook algorithm is all based on actual individual social sharing. So if you see something come across the feed, uh, you're one of the lucky ones, uh, we do need the boost support. So it it helps a hell of a lot if there's a show that looks interesting to you, for you to share it in your feeds with your friends. If you're a Twitter person, uh, things are going pretty good over there. It's it's Facebook that's hard to crack, um, and we just we need individual support. Um, if you haven't liked the Facebook page, please go do that. Um, do I do I enjoy shilling for Facebook? No, 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 particularly. You know, like we all have a fraught relationship with that company. It's central in our lives in in ways that. Um, <laughs> Sometimes like, well, we never signed up for this. I mean, we, we did. We literally signed up for it. Just like anyone is on, right? Like there's like there's like 20 people who like steadfastly refused and like, you know, they're all insufferable, but, uh, <laughs> but at least they can say, I never signed up for it. Um, but we're fighting the algorithms. So um, do us a favor, uh, share the word. Particularly what's really great episodes of the podcast, episodes of the podcast, uh, they need that love. Uh, and this is a good one to do it with. 
Uh, ooh, there's a segue for you. Um, I first met Sean Stewart um, some number of years ago. He was part of the the core team, part of the, one of the co-founders of a company called Fourth Wall Studios um, that was working on what sort of a, a 21st century media company would be, what, what the innovations were. Um, that was a project he was doing with Alan Lee and Jim Stewartson. Um, and then when when the, the funding for that uh, went bye-bye, um, they, they had backing of a, of, a, of a very wealthy person in Los Angeles, uh, and, and that person was like, oh, hey, you know, um, I got other plans now. Um, and they've, they've gone on to have many other plans. Um, so uh, when, when that project ended, uh, sort of the, the fellowship was sundered and they, they, they went on to like different projects. Um, but before that, they had been working in this ARG world for a while. Indeed, tracing all the way back to, as I mentioned before, to the beast. So Sean, I met during uh, when I did a story for Marketplace. Uh, yes, American Public Media's Marketplace, not NPR's Marketplace. As a public media nerd, uh, we're very insistent upon that. So I was doing that, and um, Sean was the person who who sort of introduced the idea of you know choose your own adventures uh, not being terribly satisfying. Uh, like you know we don't have bookshelves full of choose your own adventures. Uh, this this sort of this relationship uh, uh, when it comes to narrative agency, like what people actually want in their storytelling. And so like he he put that bug in my brain many many years ago. Um, so when I got invited out to Sandbox Immersive Festival in Qingdao, I checked and s- checked to see like who else was going, and lo and behold, Sean was there uh, in the list. And I was like, "That's very exciting. I haven't seen Sean in years. I've I've kept up with Alan, talked to Jim a few times, but Sean's like the, the one of the co-founders that I I haven't haven't kept up in touch with." Um, and lo and behold, we were on the same plane. And we were seated in the same row. So when 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 Sean w- walked on board, I was like, Sean Stewart. Um, and I remembered a few details of, of the interviews. And he was he was like, I can't remember that. And I was like, it's cool, it's cool, it's what I do. Um, and uh, we got to talking a little bit, but we weren't we weren't sitting right next to each other. There was like the aisle there was also like a grandmother and her kid <laughs> like in between. I was like, I'm not gonna for the next eleven hours talk over these to people uh that would just be rude but uh while we were there at the festival we talked a few more times and uh sean gave this great keynote um about well i'm not going to spoil that because he gets into some of it in in this um and so yeah i just said i know i have to have sean on the podcast he's a wonderful guy he's got this insight into the way uh, the way the internet wants to tell stories the way that participatory stories work um, and he was, you know, there at the foundation of one of the core things that drives this immersive renaissance. So, you know, my, my expectations are pretty high and, uh, I feel like they've been met and or exceeded. We go all over the place. Uh, yeah, Star Wars rears, rears its head. Um, you're just gonna have to deal with it. This was recorded on my porch we jokingly refer to it as a veranda. Um, <laughs> Uh, a couple of nights ago uh, because the neighbor's uh, fan was turning the living room into a kettle drum and I was like, no, this is not going to be sustainable. And luckily, uh, Thai Town behaved itself and uh, didn't cause a bunch of trouble. And lo and behold, we got ourselves a podcast episode. Here we go. All right, uh, the astute amongst you will notice that we've got some street sounds, we've got some crickets. Uh, we're outdoors because it's a nice balmy night here in Los Angeles, and maybe my neighbor's unbalanced fan is turning my entire living room into the inside of an EDM drum. So uh, I wanted to spare your ears a humming sound, and instead you're going to get crickets. So imagine there's a placid lake here and not... Uh, not whatever's going on in Thai Town at the moment, uh, which is what's really happening. Sitting across from me uh, here on the veranda at No Pro Headquarters <laughs> is uh, Sean Stewart, uh, who's a writer uh, and one of uh, I want to say like one of the architects of of a form that a lot of people listening to the show know, which is uh, the alternate reality game. 
So I guess that's probably we can sort of start there, I think, of, of all places. It's the most pertinent. So you were part of the team that made the first one, right? That's correct. Um, Jordan Weissman had this uh, problem handed to him uh, when he was at Microsoft, which is his boss bought the game rights for the new Steven Spielberg movie AI for $19 million without having read the script. Jordan then read the script. I don't know how many of your listeners have seen AI, but I'm going to guess that very few of them at the end of that film said, oh my God, I've got to buy that game. <laughs> um, for the same reason that no one ran out of Schindler's List to go to their local GameStop and pick up the game for that one either. Yeah, yeah, probably, probably not the... I mean, there could have been something with the Jude Law sex robot, yeah, but, yeah. you know, that's probably it. So Jordan had this idea, and he said, okay, you couldn't come out of Schindler's List wanting to buy the game, but if you broadened the lens a little bit to the Second World War, you would create an environment that had both Schindler's List and games in it. You could make all kinds of World War II games, action games, strategy games, shooter games, um, but you'd create this context that could hold both that and this very moody film. So he started thinking the same way about AI. What if we were to make the world of AI, and that would be a capsule that would hold the films, but it would also hold more traditional games inside it. Hmm. When all was said and done, they never did ship any of the games, but the world building, which was what I was part of, um, became the first ARG, the, which is now nicknamed the Beast. So, so this is something I, I didn't know. All of that work around the ARG was about building out a bigger world to create what, what, we, what I guess a little bit later we would have called like you know the transmedia experiences around AI. That's right. Oh, so wow. it was to create a world of 2142 in which many things could happen, including both the movie and the game and the transmedia story that we were telling. Um, Jordan, from the time he was very young, had been obsessed with, um, among other things, the Beatles mystery. Um, the idea that, I don't know if, how many of your listeners are old enough to remember, but there was this thing that went around that if you like looked at the cover of Sgt. Pepper's, there were clues on it that indicated that Paul McCartney was actually dead, and you could read the lyrics off the White Album, and they would lead you on a mystery, and if you followed these clues and you called Abbey Road Studios at such and such a time, then John would pick up and tell you the answer to the mystery. <laughs> Almost certainly none of that was true, but it was a very powerful urban myth, and with the advent of the internet, he was thinking, I think we could do this now, but for reals. Yeah. Um, so that was... That was the initial idea, um, and he sold that idea to Kathleen Kennedy and Steven Spielberg, um, but they wanted not to have just like some guy at Microsoft be the writer on that. They wanted a real writer, so they called a real writer, not me, obviously. They called it another different real writer. Um, Kathleen Kennedy had had the option for Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash for years, and had talked to Neil at various times about both games and novels, and she called him up and said, hey, we're thinking of doing this really interesting project. I wonder if you'd be interested in being involved as sort of the, to lead up the writing. And Neil found an exquisitely polite way to say, uh, pretty, pretty busy and affluent right now, but thanks for that. <laughs> um, I do, however, have a broke friend, and that was me. Mm. Was that when, when was that when he was doing the Baroque cycle? I think it would have been just starting, probably. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Was, so just he, a little after the Diamond Age. Yeah, he was he was really. It was deep, deep, in, deep. In there him. was there was, you can, you can write about twenty first century robots, or you can think about Leibniz's love life, but you cannot do both. No, it's true. It's 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 hard. So so Jordan, particularly at the volume that he does. Yes, <laughs> yes indeed. So Jordan called me up and said, hey, I got your name from Neil Stevenson, and we're working on this kind of project. And he started to explain what the project might be, um, saying that they needed a writer. Um, and then he paused and he said, by any chance, would you happen to know what a 
role-playing game is? <laughs> and I said, well, if you're looking for someone who's played Empires of the Petal Throne with the RuneQuest damage tables, that would be me. <laughs> and Jordan laughed and said, there may only be 10 people in Seattle who understand that sentence, but I happen to be one of them. Oh, so yeah. that was actually my entire secret password into the world of new media and immersive theater and all those things was the fact that I was a super RPG dork when I was in high school. I was one of those, I blush to think of it now, but I was one of those people who was too cool to play D&D because like everyone played D&D. I was a RPG hipster. It's hard <laughs> to imagine a level of pretension beyond that, but... And uh, look, you can you can play your druid and your fighters and whatever, but in our Merp game, we've got a we've got a full blooded orc who leads the leads the party, and he's he's an Urukai. So let's just be. And I'm quoting from our high school, um, our high school Merp. Uh, but yeah, and no, actually, the entire campaign is about his loveless marriage. <laughs> now that. <laughs> That, I need to ship this to my friend Jacob Rosenbaum, who played that character, and be like, I've got a follow-up for our high school Merp campaign, Melbez's Loveless Marriage. Yeah, it's it's the sad 45-year-old D&D campaign. It's like, quest to repay the mortgage. <laughs> so this actually brings up something uh, that you mentioned. So, like, Sean, I... I I had met Sean years ago. We got to reconnect uh, during Sandbox Immersive Festival. Actually, on the plane, because like you sat like there, there was there was a grandmother and her son uh, kind of between us, and so I, I took mercy on them because I wanted to like talk to Sean like all flight long. But there was eleven hours, and that poor child probably needed sleep. So I was just like, oh, like I'll I'll see you on the other side of this thing. And then then now we're sitting here on my porch, um, and. That's a long way of saying there was a thing you talked about while you were in in China and, and even you're giving your your, your keynote uh, that you got paid to write LARPs in college. I did, and this this is pre. This is this is this is like height of role playing renaissance. Uh, or not even Renaissance, like no, the, the first, first, the first blush, yeah, the first, first blush of role playing, yeah. pre Vampire the Masquerade and all that stuff, pre nineties. So, so how did you, how the hell did that happen, right? Like, I think now we're getting this point where there are people who are professionally dungeon mastering again, but but this was this is a ways back. There were a couple of, there was a guy who worked at a local rock radio station and hated his job a lot and loved playing D&D. And he and his wife started a company called Sir Unicorn Enterprises. And they really, really, really wanted to make a for money D&D experience. So um, they set up this thing. So there would be on a long weekend, you'd go out on the Friday of a long weekend and you'd be overnight on like some dude's farm. Right. Think of it as Dork Woodstock. So 250 <laughs> Canadian prairie guys who had taken the money to pay for it out of their mom's purses or their social assistance checks um, and come for two days of unabashed dorkery. Um, and they were, by the way, great. They were the best audience ever and taught me a ton. Like the reason that to whatever extent I didn't screw up my part of the ARG thing, I owe it 100% to Sir Unicorn Enterprises. Because I learned a lot about, there are certain types of players who always show up in this kind of experience. Mm. Um, there's a uh, run and find out guy. Um, he doesn't want to figure it out, he just wants to run and collect the thing. And then he zooms out into the wilderness with fighter guy, fighter guy is doesn't need the extra task, but he wants to defend the right. Run and find it guy, then finds whatever it is, brings it back to puzzle solve guy, who sits in the middle and tries to figure out what even the hell is going on, and then chats with socializer person. And so these four fundamental core units of immersive gaming theater story, um, which you could call fighter, thief, wizard, cleric if mm -hmm. you wish to yes um are 
recur over and over again. And by the time we were doing the alternate reality games, I sort of, as soon as I got the rhythm of what we were doing, I was thinking, oh, I just need to build uh, the the experience was called Dream Quest. It's like, it's just making Dream Quest, but for like a million people. Um, and I had learned who the different types of people were and could try to work with, with Ilan and Jordan to make sure that there was something that would be fun for those different kinds of play patterns. When you guys put it out into the world, the play patterns helped. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it, it did. Um, uh, it was interesting to watch. And if, if I can take a moment for a metaphorical flight of fancy, um, just because of the, the accident that we're here recording on your veranda. Um, after the Beast, after the very first one of these alternate reality games, people would often ask me, What's the, what is the most amazing thing about what you guys did? And I said, the most amazing thing about that experience was actually the nature of the audience. Um, we did lots of fun stuff, but making a work of art that is targeting a collection of people, not an individual person, not even like a movie, is a single-player experience had by 200 people in the same room at the same time. Right. It's a single-player experience. An alternate reality game is, by its nature, built so that you have to have multiple people experiencing different parts of it at the same time and then sharing it back and forth. It is essentially science in the age of Darwin hot-wired into an entertainment form. <laughs> if you think about, like, the Royal Society is an ARG. Um, there's a guy in South Africa who says, I found a funny looking lizard. Meanwhile, in France, someone is saying, I managed an experiment which found oxygen. And in Iceland, someone is digging up um, dinosaur bones. And they're all summing this knowledge, trying to build this coherent picture of how everything works. That's really a lot like an alternate reality game. So when we made the first one, it was super interesting to watch how people collected into an organism. Uh, a shoal of fish is a different thing than an individual fish and operates under different principles than an individual fish. It is its own unit. Right. And one of the things that was super interesting was watching the way people fell into this way of being both themselves and part of a group at the same moment in the process of making art. And after it was over, um, I had this strange four years of being John the Baptist. And so I would walk around and say, I have seen the future. <laughs> I, know what, I know what the future is going to be like now in a way that, in all honesty, I think very few people do. Because um, I felt it. And people would say, okay, so what's the future like? I said, well, it's hard to put into words. But here's my best shot. I spent, uh, we've had this conversation, I think, um, I grew up spending all my winters on the Canadian prairies and all my summers in Texas, which, by the way, don't do that. <laughs> um, if you're going to do it, do it in reverse. Yes. All your winters in Texas, all your summers on the Canadian Much better yes. idea. Yes. However, that's not how it went down. <laughs> so there's a very interesting distinction between those places. In, Other than the hot and cold. <laughs> we're getting there. Um, in Edmonton, in, in Canada in the winter, the distinction between inside and outside is extremely clear. Inside, for example, you live. Outside, you don't. Um, uh, so it's a very sharp, it's like inside and outside is, is divided as neatly as it is in a circumstance like, for instance, an airplane. Right. Like, there is no confusion between those two states. Right. However, in the South, where I spent uh, in a Texas summer, or indeed in Thai Town in Los Angeles, there is a third space. Mm. And I would say to people, there's something called the porch. And on the front porch, I am both in my private home, but I am interacting with people in the street. I am public and private at the same moment. And I ran around for years telling people the future will be lived 
on the porch. Porch space will be the defining social interaction paradigm. It's the stoop. It's the stoop in New York. Yeah. And then in 2005, I could stop giving that whole long speech and just point to Facebook and say that. Mm. Because Facebook, Twitter, all of them are just porch space rendered online. And that's what I had seen yeah. on The Beast. Yeah. And that's the, the reason that I think it's so nice that we're out here on your veranda is that was the first time I managed to articulate what the future would be like. <laughs> I, I do want to point out for people, particularly for my Patreon backers, <laughs> we are ironically using the term veranda. <laughs> I mean, in 1922 when this building was built, I'm pretty sure this was a really nice porch. In 2018, it's functional. Um, yes, I'm, <laughs> I'm not saying it's it is very green. It's verdant. I will it's, give it verdant. It's verdant. Yeah. And, and it is dangerously close to being a proscenium. Uh, that is true. It, we could put people on the other side of this and they could watch us and this would be a proscenium. There are arches involved. Um, I want to I wanna zero in aside from jokes about my porch, uh, which we can just do for the next 20 minutes. Um, I would never stoop. <laughs> um, this idea of you know, the stoop, Facebook and Twitter being that that third space and watching in the first couple of years, before the hell nightmare that is Twitter now or Facebook, they're both nightmares, before that had erupted, watching as people who were used to, you know, being in their little bubble of social media find themselves because of a hashtag or because of you know them errantly getting shared to another social network, uh, within the bigger network, suddenly finding themselves defending or arguing with people or just interacting with folks they never they never thought they were going to. And we have not recovered from that moment at all. And there's there's no there's no teleological endpoint to the interactions that we have on social media, unlike NARG, which at least theoretically has some some place we're we're going. Instead, it's just sort of the, the, the chaos. And, and we haven't found sort of the social norms yet that can let us have a civil society. Like, you know, not that I'm saying like, oh, we got to be civil. I'm not trying to bring that up. But just just people don't treat people okay. like they're... Yeah. I'm okay if you do. Yeah. Canadian. Yeah. You know. Well, people, people, people don't treat people like they're people on the internet. And I'm wondering if, if that's something that... That you've in, you saw in the Beast, and uh, you saw people overcome in the Beast. Yeah, it's a super interesting question. In fact, I, I was on a panel at South by Southwest last year about literally this um, about online civility, um, uh, hosted by uh, Ramona Pringle, um, who's done some really interesting work on it. And it's worth looking up. Uh, I, of course, it's interesting because there are a lot of approaches to this problem. I am at least in part a game designer, so I tend to think of it as a game design problem. Um, I will tell you where the conversation started between me and Ramona um, was around this conundrum and with the Beast. Um, the Beast started, for those who are not deep into the geekdom of alternate reality games, the first place that found the websites and World 2142, um, it was a guy, they were, they were film nerds. They were people who were interested in AI because it had been a Kubrick film before Spielberg took it over. Um, and so Kubrick film nerds were the ones who were parsing the film poster and stumbled across Janine Sala, sentient machine therapist, what the fuck, um, and began to run that down. And they posted about 24 hours after the first thing was found, um, one of those people posted to a site called Ain't It Cool News, which is a movie mm. discussion board. And uh, shortly thereafter, there was a lot of exploration and people sort of found the world and started doing the puzzles and whatnot. But if you read through, uh, they, they, f they made a board on an old Yahoo group because Yahoo groups was a thing back then. Um, and if you read through the 35,000 posts on Yahoo Groups. Uh, in the first thousand posts, um, 
there must be 15 or 20 of them which are like what has happened to us we're the same people as we are on ain't it cool news but on ain't it cool news we're all assholes <laughs> and here we're like super nice and cooperative and it's woodstock and we're saving the world why how can we be assholes there and yet the same group doing this are somehow like super positive and and ultra humanistically connected growing growthful whatever i don't wish to provide a psychological theory but i can tell you as a piece of i don't know field biology that as long as there was something for them to do they were incredibly pro-social cooperative mm. helpful if two or three or four days went by with nothing to do then they fell entropically back towards assholedom interesting and so eventually um there was such a hunger for more game content we had originally been updating um every tuesday morning every tuesday morning at nine there would be new content there would be it would, like dickens writing publishing a new chapter of a right. serialized novel eventually we started doing content updates twice a week and the single most important reason for that is the players were becoming increasingly irascible and mean to one another so we had to feed them twice a week instead of once a week to keep them busy because that made them happy and nice to one another mm. which was the original conversation i was having with ramona and she said we should do a panel about that and we got some other people so that online civility thing uh, it's I mean, dumb to say something as simple as when people have a shared goal, right. they stop being assholes. Right. But it's certainly but yeah. true. Well, and like I think of my own habits around checking the news and the anxiety around checking the news, of which there's it's just it's free flowing anxiety. I mean, if I could fuel myself on anxiety alone, I would I'd be at Mars or maybe Jupiter by now. Let's admit it. I'd be at Uranus. Um, hey now, <laughs> had to go. I was gonna say Pluto, but it's no longer a yeah. planet. Um, oh yes, yes. It's it's been restored. There's this strange, like, are you a saint? Are you not? It has been beatified again. Uh, it is, is heading back towards planethood. Thank goodness. So. I could not deal with it not being a planet. Um, the um, <laughs> yeah, why did I go for the dumb joke? Anyway, um, <laughs> this idea of like. Well, watching points, let's talk about the news, like watching when there are points in the news cycle when people actually have something to do and how the mood changes when there's a, a call to action and a clear call to action and the ability to go and move things forward as opposed to just circling, 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 circling. And, and there's a certain point of view where you sit there going, you know, I thought the point of a democracy was supposed to be that we always had the ability to get involved and, and we find ourselves kind of in a, in a cage where we don't we don't really have that power we thought we did. And when I look at things like alternate reality games, um, I see similar dynamics where people are deeply involved in the world that they're uncovering slash building. As a world builder, how much how much do you see the the, the players? This dog really wants to be on this podcast. Uh, well, listen, and little buddy. it's working out for him. It really is working out for him, i got to admit. Um, how much do you see the players as being kind of co-creators of the world? Oh, a lot. Um, this, as you know, is sort of the, the topic of the, the talk I gave in China. Um, and it's a, a metaphor that they come back to. Um, is I, I grew up uh, my first sorry my second after my days LARPing and writing murder mystery dinner theater I became a serious novelist who did serious novel like things um, and the, the novel is a form of entertainment that um, as I said follows the the old model of art is cooking I make a meal you eat the meal or possibly you spit the meal out those are really your options this kind of art, alternate reality game kind of art, and I would argue increasingly all kinds of art, um, are more like dancing. Um, in ballroom, they used to say, and forgive the gendered reference, 
the gentleman proposes the step, the lady decides whether or not to accept. And I think increasingly entertainment is moving into a world in which as creators we propose the step but it is a dance and you can't do it if they don't want to come along mm -hmm. um, there is a lot of things haven't been democratized as much as we might like this one arguably has been democratized too much um, <laughs> but it is true that this is now uh, there is a reciprocity involved mm. um, uh, the example that I often give, and I apologize for being tedious since you, you know no, where no, I'm no, going to no. go with this. This, but is, this, is, this is not for me. It's for, yeah. it's for everyone who hasn't heard. Um, one example that I traditionally give is that uh, there are just over 720,000 words in the first five books of the Harry Potter series. Um, on a single website, the second largest fan fiction website and only that one alone there are more than three quarters of a million complete Harry Potter stories so not only has JK Rowling written not the less than one percent of everything ever written about Harry Potter JK Rowling has written less than 50 percent of everything ever read about Harry Potter she does not own that world in the way that a Dickens or even a Tolkien owned theirs. There is a fundamental realignment of power. Um, and for a while, this was like a talking point. Um, and a bit like the, the moment at which I was talking about porches and finally just point at Facebook happened this year with um, Last Jedi, mm. in which it's no longer theoretically a power struggle between the author, in air quotes, and the audience. There was an actual drag out fists bloodied fight between the author and the fans over the correct shape of Last Jedi yeah. played out extremely publicly. Yeah, and it's still, it's still playing out, it's still it's still flaring up. Um, tangent. Something happened yesterday that uh, was interesting was that there were people who were on the, the anti-side of, of, of TLJ, and we all know I, I, I stand in the middle. Um, and some of those people were, were pushing forward a, a, a particular interpretation of uh, Luke's moment in Return of the Jedi. And they interpret it as a, it was a warrior showing mercy. That's why he doesn't kill Vader. And this seems to like explain a lot of the behavior because it's like that's a fundamental misread of 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 the authorial intent and even everything in that scene. It's very clear that it's like it's his compassion in that moment which heals his father's soul and allows the real villain to be vanquished. But so many of us watching this fight, seeing people who have you know, internalize this idea that like, no, 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 it's like, it's the samurai saying, I can show mercy, being like, whoa, you never got this story. But that is, given that Star Wars is a religion for so many people, that's just what happens in a religion, right? It's like, it's why the Gospel of Thomas is not in the Bible anymore, even though it's totally rad, is because at some point someone said, no, you don't get this story. That's not the right story. This is the right story over here. Um, they actually voted on it. Yeah. I mean, the, uh, the... We've been here before. That's the funny thing. Is like All of the stuff, we've, we've been here before. The, the idea that J.K. Rowling may have created the Harry Potter universe, but that it's going to get retold and retold and retold. Or like every time there's a remake of a movie and everyone loses their minds, I'm like... You know how many times Hamlet's been performed? You know, you know that that like, you know, Aristophanes was probably like the fourth or fifth. Hell, Shakespeare was rewriting other people, and that's how he got Shakespeare. Like this is what humans do, man. It's um, yes, everyone. There is nobody who doesn't start by writing fan fiction. There's no other way to get there. Yeah, you're. For, I mean, Star Wars is fan fiction of like uh, Kurosawa and uh, a bunch of other stuff. James Joyce, uh, sorry, William Faulkner's first novels were 
attempts to write James Joyce novels by some hick kid from Mississippi. And like, we just all do it. Yeah. We all do it. There's no way. Yeah. My daughter um, went to uh, SF State, like some other fine people I know. <laughs> um, and she had a course uh, that talked about the sources of the Bible and the way that the Bible is a syncretic text yeah. just made together from many different pieces and many different authors of varying degrees of authenticity and um, she came home just with her eyes like saucers and said oh my god all canon really is fanon <laughs> <laughs> yeah like literally canon is fanon <laughs> no it's true it's true like it's uh yeah let's let's walk away from because Sometimes, sometimes Ryan Johnson, director of, of Last Jedi, he, he's in one of my co- not the one we were just at, but like he's in my other, my other go-to cafe. And one of these days, I want to sit down, but I don't want to talk to him about. Um, I don't want to talk to him about the story. I want to talk to him about like his conception of religion as it's processed through here, because he's he's got some interesting ideas about what what he was trying to do with the film about like replacing the concept of god that you find sort of in 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 the star wars um it's actually in the art of art of the last jedi book it says like all you know what happens when you've come come up to the limitations of your concept of god and need to replace it with something else which is like right there written in black and white as like one of his intents and i think that underneath it all uh if we take god as a metaphor for uh, you know the, the fundamental ground of, of being, and and he's interrogating that, and he's interrogating it uh, at a lot for a lot of people. They just absorb Star Wars as their their religion, their myth, even if they're not religious per se. There's an ethical code that they feel is embedded into it, and he's you, you know you bring this stuff up into question, and people have all kinds of crazy reactions because of it. You know, well something that is probably not immediately known to most of your audience is that in my vagabond troubadour life I am also the author of the only Star Wars book that is deliberately focused on Yoda uh, Yoda Dark Rendezvous and I bring it up because um, you don't get a ton of time to write a Star Wars book and in fact when I was called about this one, they were already behind schedule. Um, so I had four months, basically, oh, wow. to write um, a novel. And uh, they asked me, you know, would I, would I like to do that? And I, I had a long, serious conversation with my banker and another with my landlord, and we all came to the decision that I did want to do that. <laughs> um, and in all fairness, I was like, I was that kid, right? Star Wars came out when I was 11. Um, I made a lightsaber by lashing a piece of PVC tubing to a flashlight with black electrical tape, like 100% that kid. And I was also intrigued by the story that was told to my agent, which is the people at Del Rey were behind on producing this book and they went out for a kind of panic lunch to say, who in the world could we possibly get to write a book about Yoda and then they looked up, apparently, at the same moment and said, Sean. And I just want to know how you get to be the answer to that question. Yeah. Like, what, if, what is it about my life or work that suddenly made two reasonable people think, you know who we need to write the Yoda book? So when I, when I took it on, um, I loved Star Wars, and I also felt that Yoda was a character that I had really enjoyed in Empire Strikes Back, who had become strangely unfun and and had wandered from his original conception pretty badly in the middle movies. So I, I was down for repatriating that. Middle movies? I, I don't know what you're talking about. Yes. yes. <laughs> well, you know, we've... To those involved with the middle movies, we have now all been equally erased from canon, so, you know, no, no stones cast. But um, I guess I thought, well, this will be a fun lark, and the pitch, I, I pitched them an idea for a story, which I said, the, the, uh, the Hollywood line was, it's the Sith who came in from the cold. Um, mm. uh, 
So I started to do that and then I began to get more and more worried because with every passing day I felt more and more strongly that this was going to be first of all by far the most read book that I would ever have written and yet I would have written it with the least amount of time mm. but beyond that beyond my personal concerns there are a fair number of people who have grown up in what you rightly call the Church of Star Wars in the generation after going to church on Sunday began to fall away from huge parts of the population yeah um, fantasy and science fiction alone among the significant genres of fiction that had mass appeal were still trying to grapple with the big questions yeah and there were a lot of Star Wars fans who Oh, the idea I couldn't get away from is there are going to be a lot of fans. I don't mean one or five or ten, but hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands who are never going to read the Bhagavad Gita. They are never going to go to church and hear the Sermon on the Mount. One day, their mom is going to get a diagnosis or they're going to wake up and find their wife packing a suitcase or someone, the hospital is going to call and say, we need you to come, we have your brother here. And some life event is going to happen and they are going, Star Wars is their church and they are going to look to the character of Yoda in all that universe mm. to find whatever they need to take them through this moment of very, very real pain and darkness. Oh yeah. And no pressure no pressure. You're down to three months in a week. So I took the book very, 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 very seriously um, because I felt like I had sort of stumbled into something that was one part entertainment, but one part trust. Mm. Um, Sacred trust sounds more falutin than I mean it, but not too much more. It was going to be a book that was going to matter to people when they needed the things that mattered to help them in a very real way. There's a, there's a moral dimension to storytelling that I think you're kind of like touching on here. I mean... We think back, you know, it's like, you know, and the moral of the story is, like, it's so embedded that we, it's a thing we, we ignore and don't think about. When you have a thing about how, like, the internet tells stories, right? Uh, the, where where the center is, right? The, the dance, uh, as opposed to the, the meal and how things are sort of inverted. How much is it, how much is it the, the storyteller's duty to be thinking in those terms, to be thinking in terms of, of values, uh, to be to be thinking about the questions that they're getting their audience to engage with, and maybe even getting their audience to provide some needed feedback. If we're in this era where it's a dance, you know, no longer is it I'm going to write and deliver the sermon it's call and response so it's a super it's an excellent excellent point um, and it makes me think of a couple of different things um, uh, first of all I think that to borrow another theological term I do think people can reasonably ask that their artists at least some of the time bear witness mm. um, that some of the time you know we just make up crazy shit but some of the time we are trying to make sense of this experience that we jointly share. And I think you need to respect both sides of that. One, that there is 
a fundamental conundrum of existence and honestly witnessing that is important and secondly the fact that everyone around you is also sharing that experience it is very easy to be a know-it-all it is very easy to be contemptuous it is very easy it is so easy right now <laughs> to feel scorn um, it's so easy to drift away from acknowledging that we are profoundly in this together um, we are on a sh we are we are all journeying together and the journey is amazing and it will for every one of us end badly and we need to have some sympathy <laughs> for one another as we go through that how do we find the courage to know to go forward and create when we know we don't know because I, I sort of feel like what you're there, there's a dimension here particularly in something participatory where that acknowledgement of of there are things I don't know but we're gonna dive into this this forest anyway so so it's why I, I use the word witness and I use it very advisedly um, Having the answers is less important than faithfully recording the experience. Um, at the end of Gilgamesh, which is one of the, you know, ur texts for our species at this point, um, Gilgamesh, who is one-third a god, and how the hell does that math work, by the way? <laughs> like, I understand everyone was swinging and whatever, but how... Hey, hey, hey you know what? Sometimes I wonder if maybe there was this, uh, a more advanced science that existed, and then it got kind of wiped out. I mean, part god, part dog, part human, <laughs> That's you right. know? Like, we could do that. All we could do that right now. Yeah. And, and well, not the God part. We don't. The, the, the CRISPR conversation is one to have on another day. Um, <laughs> but uh, the the short version, in case you missed the class, was um, Gilgamesh is a dick. Um, he, I didn't miss that day, by the way. <laughs> Gilgamesh is a dick, but he meets his buddy uh, Enkidu, and they become besties, and then they have a series of adventures, and then Enkidu dies. Uh, tragically and Gilgamesh goes back to the city out of the desert and says I had a friend and he died and I'm gonna tell you the story of that the first thing you can do in the face of of jubilation or desolation is to honestly tell the story um, mm. that is our sort of first responsibility I in terms of the dance um, I find I am amused by satire I enjoy satire but I do not theologically trust satire because satire puts the author in a position of superiority to the reader mm. I much prefer an under uh, relationship between equals mm. um, and I feel like uh, respect and respect for the audience is for me at least and like other people do things totally differently and that's fine for me I find I need to hold respect for the audience as a that's a big part of the ground and it, it expresses itself in in various ways I'll talk about this I'll make this a little less theological and abstract in an alternate reality game there are always um, uh, forums where people try to solve the puzzle and whatnot and every client in the history of ever always wants you to go onto the player forums and pretend to be a player and write things to sway opinion or to move the story along or whatever and we've always uh, refused to do that under any circumstances um, because you don't go where the audience is and then lie to them. You don't go and put this another way. Um, we're working on a big ERG called I Love Bees for Halo 2. 
and uh, there were we there was a queasy point where it hadn't failed but it hadn't succeeded yet either and we really needed like press or some kind of coverage and some people came and they said they wanted to interview uh, Elon Lee and myself um, as we were making this project and Elon said absolutely not and I said so what's your thinking because we could honestly dude we could use the press he said no what we're asking people to do to engage in a story to suspend disbelief and engage in our story even out in the middle of the of their own world in the middle of the street walking down their houses like not just in the privacy of a book or watching a TV but to carry into their lives this like soap bubble of suspension of disbelief if I come out and I sit instead of this being this thing they're doing I say I'm the author I made that all of a sudden that makes that person feel like a sucker Mm. It makes them feel like someone got over on them. It's important that we be anonymous when we're making this stuff. It's important that we foreground this as the story is what's really happening and their experience of the story that's really important. We'll take our bows later, but right now, pointing at ourselves is just going to make them feel like suckers, and you never want to do that. And I wouldn't have found those words, and I'm not sure I would have even thought about it, but the instant he said it, it struck me as exactly right, that it is appropriate for us in that time, in that place at any rate, to always make sure that this experience was amazing and fun rather than something that the other kids should kind of laugh at them for back at the very beginning of this conversation we were talking about LARPing mm -hmm. and and I said the the kids like taking their mom's money to come do a Dungeons and Dragons in the woods were awesome the unspoken half of that is at the same time I was writing Murder Mystery Dinner Theater so you'd go into the household of reasonably affluent 38 year old yuppie who worked at an advertising firm or something and you do this thing and they were always like super slight some were kind of wanting to be into it but didn't want to look uncool and some people were like this is really weird and I and because they would not commit it was just a terrible theater experience mm. compared to the guys who were like I am here in my rubber boots and cloak and I am giving it <laughs> you know they were all in and that made it so much better and the people who are like afraid they might be embarrassed in front of their coworkers, such a more awkward experience for them. You had to work so much harder to make it a space in which it was okay for them to play. Yeah. So I think part of what Elon was getting at is never let the threat of I'm being suckered, I'm being manipulated, I'm having one put over on me enter into that. It yeah. has to be respectful. It's right. the flip side of everyone on YouTube. Um, the buzzword is always authenticity. Right. And this is just the other side of that. <laughs> if you're going to be in the creator role, you know, extend dignity to your audience. Treat them with respect. Yeah. I've, there's, there's a lot we could unpack there. We've also been at this on the podcast now for like an hour so, or close to an hour. We've been talking before and, and we got to go our separate ways soon um there's there's a thing we're not going to talk about on the cast which is that you're you're consulting for a company that's down in florida these days that's that's got a lot of buzz and making a lot of moves around um but in your talk in china uh we phrase this as we this would be like dessert in on the podcast we, we were talking we were actually before we actually had actual dessert um there was a thing you did in the, in the talk there um, where you talked about how sort of, you know, sort of the role of theater in in the technology or the role of theater in, in the way technologically based storytelling is going to be working as we as we go forward. And I just wonder if there's something in sure. terms of vague pronostication sure. uh, that, that one in a role such as yours has to do can sort of as a as a message out there to the to the theater nerds amongst us. So, um, 
one trend that is irreversible that goes along with that shift of power over to the consumer from the creator is the consumer is going to consume what she likes, how she likes, where she likes. Um, she doesn't want to have to be on her couch Tuesday at 8 to watch a show. She'll watch that show whenever. Um, she'll save it on her DVR or she'll binge it a year and a half from now. Like That is no longer the idea of of Tuesday at 8 is, is dead for anyone under the age of 60. You're going to see variations of that affecting a larger and larger range of things. We are more and more going to need to appeal to the audience to, to do things in the way that they want, when they want, where they want. And one of the things that means is the most convenient place for an audience to experience a work of art is wherever they are. Um, whether that's mobile experiences that travel with them on their phones and find them wherever they are, or Pokemon Go-like arise from their environment as they travel, or whether it's in their home. And the, one of the phrases I used in the China talk a little flippantly was, uh, we used to use the phrase home theater to mean you had a big TV and some speakers, so it was like a home cinema. And my argument is that we will increasingly see home theater in the older sense of theater because as houses become, or apartments or wherever you live, becomes increasingly connected, it will be possible to, for example, the, again, an example I used before, when, uh, a story that has stayed with me because parenting is like this, um, when my daughter was 11 years old, um, on her birthday, she came out of her room crying because there was no letter inviting her to Hogwarts. Um, we can fix this now. Um, with the kinds of technologies that we have available and the skills less of cinema and more the skills of classic theater, we can begin to create Hogwarts in people's houses. So if you bear with me for a moment, if you're using something like augmented reality tech, having an owl fly into my daughter's room and drop a letter for her, piece of cake. The owl will actually navigate the room. Um, it's spatially mapped. It will perch on a chair back rather than sit awkwardly with its wing through a desk because we can do that now. Um, after she reads her invitation to Hogwarts, the Alexa or Google Home speaker down in the living room, down the stairs and around the hall, can actually call out to her, Caitlin, Caitlin, Harry Potter is in trouble, in the voice of a character, and be linked and timed against when that owl arrived. And when she runs out of her bedroom and goes down the stairs, um, not only will she be able to use AR or VR tech to see a character, but um, voice interactions have taken a gigantic leap forward in the last five years. And five years from now, um, we will be able to make conversations that feel eerily real. Um, so you will be able, I used to, when I was a kid, I wanted to go to Middle Earth. Um, and I couldn't, so I decided to be a writer instead. Um, I wanted to go through the wardrobe um, and into Narnia, and I became a writer because that was the next best thing. Well, we don't actually have to settle for that anymore. We can bring people to Narnia. We can bring Narnia to them. We can set up a phantom toll booth in your bedroom. Um, and increasingly, what we're finding as we do more and more work with VR and AR and other kinds of immersive technologies is that um, people with a cinema background are often more handicapped than helped by what they know. It's people with a theater background, stage magicians, people who are good at controlling attention, people who work in a physical space, people who know how to work a crowd, buskers, mimes, street theaters, 
It's been a long time that we've been waiting for mimes to take over, but this <laughs> might be the moment. Send in the clowns is basically what the high-tech world is saying. Send in the clowns. They're the people who know how to get this done. A perfect note to end on. Sean Stewart, thank you for spending an hour on my veranda. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Once again, I want to thank Sean Stewart for being our guest on the show today. Yeah, I don't, I don't have a lot to, to add uh, this time out. Um, for, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the show, this is, this is sort of you know, my part of the show where I just say you know, whatever I want to say. Um, yeah, um, I'm perfectly content with the episode as it is. I don't want to sully it. Uh, so yeah, let's do something unusual. Let's just jump, jump right into the, uh, let's jump into the credits. <laughs> it almost feels awkward. It's like, I feel like I should do something else, but like, no, no, that was good. That was pretty good. I'm content. Just, just accept your content, Noah. It doesn't happen all that often. The music for No Persinium is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society. You can find No Persinium at nopersinium.com or also at nopersinium on Twitter or at no underscore persinium on uh, Instagram uh, or at Facebook. Very important, the Facebook. Uh, for all my like, uh, very, very important, the Facebook uh, at uh, at no persinium on Facebook. Um, there's also our, uh, our Facebook group, which a lot of you are probably familiar with, uh, everything immersive. Uh, that's us along with room escape artist and our friend Ricky Briganti. Uh, you can find us, of course, if you want to financially support us, uh, patreon.com slash no persinium. I believe the next big milestone is to upgrade the audio equipment and you will get a taste of that next week when you get to hear what it sounds like when we use Jacob Patterson of Think Tank Gallery's audio equipment, which is dope and which we're totally going to copy. So, um, yeah, that's what you want. So uh, consider that a test spin. Um, you can always email me, uh, Noah at nopersinium.com. And we have, uh, if you're trying to submit uh, a show for a listing, uh, pitches at nopersinium.com. That's the open door for that. Um, if you have um, if you have some writing you're interested in doing, uh, if you've got like a feature pitch or there's an interview that you think would be cool, uh, contact us that way as well. Uh, the doors are open. Uh, you know we're a pirate armada, and so there's there's not much in the way of pay. There's sometimes uh, travel stipends, small travel stipends, uh, like we'll pay for your Uber. Um, but, um, yeah, um, hit us up, hit us up We're we're, we're, we're accepting submissions. Um, people don't know that we do. I don't make a big deal of it, but, but we're doing that these days. Um, anything else? No, that's it. Um, be good to each other. Uh, the sustaining backers for no proscenium are Bradley Smith, Jan Budman, Lonnie Hansen, Arthur Tubman, Ari Hurston, Ross Sigworth, and Sam Kinkin. I'm Noah Nelson, and until next time, I'll see you at the show. Mm-hmm.